Hey, if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17. We are in the very last message on a series that I began on Easter Sunday called Shattered Dreams. And uh, we began the series by looking at Joseph all the way back in the Old Testament. Joseph, you'll recall, had received a dream by God about his future destiny, about what God was going to accomplish through his life. And he made the mistake of sharing that dream with his older brothers who did not like him because Joseph, if you recall, was dad's favorite and dad made no bones about it, right? Gave him that special coat that was multicolored and treated him differently and So when he uh, sprung his dream upon his brothers, they hated him all the more. And so one day, uh, his father sends him out into the fields to check on his brothers. And remember that the Bible says that Joseph used to come back and tattle on his brothers about what they were doing. So they hated him and hated him even more. And so you just keep reading that all through the scripture, uh, how they they just loathed their brother Joseph. And so finally, they, they were just fed up. They had enough. So they throw him in a pit and they decide they're going to kill him. And then tell his, his father that wild animals took his life. And so Reuben, the oldest brother, said, look, we can't do that. We, we've got to spare his life. So they sell him to a caravan of traders who are on their way to Egypt. He is then put on the slave block, sold to Potiphar. He's in Potiphar's house, overseeing his household. Potiphar's wife has a, an eye for Joseph. And she approaches him, and he you know, kind of rebuffs her. She cries rape. He's thrown in prison. For 13 years, he's in prison. And then finally, um, he is released from prison because he can interpret the dream of the Pharaoh. And so the Pharaoh put him in second in command over all of Egypt because there was seven years of famine that was about to come, and there were going to be seven years of, of favor. And so Joseph came up with the plan, hey, during the seven years of favor, let's stockpile and prepare for the seven years of famine. And so when the seven years of famine finally came, Joseph's brothers were forced to come to Egypt in order to seek out food for their family. Well, lo and behold, because Joseph by this time looked like an Egyptian, spoke like an Egyptian, they did not recognize it was his brother. Now, here's the the cool thing, is that think about this. If you were in Joseph's shoes, how would you have responded to your brothers? The ones who sold you off into slavery, and you have suffered at the hands of others for many, many years. Can you not imagine there was so much hurt and anger and bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness that had built up in the heart of Joseph over the years? Had it been most of us, those brothers showed up on the scene looking for food, we would just said, off with their head, right? We're done. (laughs) But yet Joseph responds in a totally different way. Instead, he responds in forgiveness. And then after their father died, his brothers, uh, you know, come a, a second time, and then his father has died, now they really are scared because they believe that the only reason Joseph gave them food was for the sake of his father. Now that his father had died, he was going to take them out. And, G- and Joseph says something to his brothers that uh, forever has marked the hearts and the lives of those who have ever had to exercise forgiveness for those who have hurt towards those who have hurt you. Here's what Joseph said. You guys meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. He meant it to you. In other words, he's saying in essence, he meant it for me to be used by God to save the lives of many. Joseph chose to forgive rather than to respond in hatred and anger and bitterness the emotional turmoil that he had to deal with and wrestle with all of his life. Well, then we went to the story of Naomi. 
Remember, Naomi and her husband lived in Bethlehem, the house of bread. Well, famine hit the land, and so they moved down into Moab. They have two sons. Those sons intermarry with two Moabitess women. And in the course of 10 years, Naomi's husband dies, her two sons die, and then she is left with these two daughter-in-laws. Now, in that day and time, to be a widow was dangerous. You had nobody looking after you unless your family was supporting you in some way, but their, their total support system were gone. And so Naomi made the decision to go back to Bethlehem, and she said to Ruth and Orpah, hey, go back to your own families. I have nothing to give you. I have nothing I can, can spare for you. And so Orpah goes back to her family, but Ruth says, oh, no, 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 I'm following you. Where you go, I will go. Your God will be my God. Very famous passage that's oftentimes used in weddings. Uh, hint, hint. So here comes Naomi back into Bethlehem, and her friends see her who have not seen her for a long time, and they say, can this be? It's Naomi. And so Naomi says to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for I am bitter. Now, listen very closely to what she said. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. And so the dreams that she had for her family had been shattered. And if it weren't bad enough, there is obviously bitterness in her heart because she's saying to them, I want you to call me by the very name that I'm feeling. And if, if that weren't enough, she had somebody to blame, and her blame was leveled upon God. He's the one who sent me out full. He brought me back empty. He's the one who has created and caused these things in my life, and therefore, I will spend the rest of my days as a bitter old woman. But that's not what God had in mind for her. In fact, God used Ruth and attached her to a kinsman's redeemer whom she married, who gave birth to a son who would be the grandfather of the eventual king of Israel, David. And so God begins restoring back into the heart and life of Naomi some emotional healing that she so desperately needed. Now this is what this entire series has been about. All throughout the course of our lives, we experience emotional trauma and hurt and pain. We talked about the things that happened to us in childhood that are completely outside of our control, but yet we carry that around with us like putting rocks in a backpack. And over the course of our lives, a lot of things and events transpire that also creates hurt and pain and trauma. It can be abuse. It can be rape and molestation. It can be, uh, you know, just a, an absent parent or a parent that dies. Or It can be a thousand different things that creates all of this emotional hurt and turmoil that we start stuffing into a backpack. And you'll notice the size of this backpack. It just gets bigger and bigger and heavier and heavier unless we learn how to deal with the emotional turmoil that we experience throughout the course of our lifetimes. Pain creates a sense of loss in our lives. And when you fail to proper, properly grieve your loss, everyone else around you will feel it. All right, because when this toxic emotions get stuffed on the inside, it doesn't just stay in one little compartment, right? It, it filters its way throughout our entire emotional system and our thought processes. 
And therefore, everybody around us becomes the recipient of our anger, of our bitterness, of our resentment. You can't say, well, I'm angry and bitter and I'm blaming this person over here for the hurt in my life, but I'm not going to let that relationship affect this relationship. You're not that good. There's no one who can do that. No one who can pull that off. And so uh, for me, you know, I had an anger quoting that was uh, on tilt. And so therefore, people around me would be the recipient of that that anger or that explosive anger, even though they may have said something that should never have created the kind of response that they were receiving. Those unhealed emotions get buried, they get avoided, they get submerged um, beneath the surface, and it begins to affect every aspect of our lives. Therefore, we're talking about what does it mean to unpack the rocks out of your backpack? How do you experience God's healing so that you can unload this thing, so that God can replace it with things that are other than that are toxic. Uh, Things like the fruit of the Spirit, like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and, and so on and so forth. How do we do that? Well, for some people, they just try to unload all this onto somebody else. They try to force somebody else to carry their backpack. They don't want to grow up. They don't want to deal with it. I don't want to take responsibility for my life. So I always have somebody else to blame. I force you to try to carry my backpack. And there are people probably in your life who will gladly take that backpack for you because they have a Jesus complex. And now what you've established is a relationship of codependency. And that is never, ever a healthy relationship. And healing does not come to either individual as long as it is You know, you're trying to process life through that. And so in the first half of this series, we've talked a lot about emotions. The second half, and this is the final one, amen, uh, is we're talking about your mind, your your mind, your thoughts, because your thoughts uh, dictate a whole lot in your life. And so when we come to the confrontation between David and Goliath, Uh, We note that David has been anointed by Samuel to be the next king over Israel, although that would not transpire for several years. He's just a shepherd boy. He's sent by his father with lunchables to take them to his brothers who are in the army of Israel. And here's Goliath coming out into the valley 40 days straight, taunting the armies of Israel and saying, look, if somebody will come out and fight me and defeat me, all the Philistines will become your slaves. But if I defeat you, The armies of Israel must become our slaves. And nobody's budging. King Saul's not budging. Nobody in the army's budging. They're just listening to this day after day for the last 40 days. And here comes David. And David says, you know what? (laughs) Enough is enough. And so he decides he is going to take on Goliath. And there's a reason. So when David showed up on the scene, uh, he brought some baggage into the, in that relationship between himself and his brothers, we're going to see their response to him. Every relationship you enter into, you carry your backpack into that relationship. So I don't know how old you were when you got married, but I can guarantee you, when you both stood at the altar, you both brought a backpack, whether it was this size or this size or bigger, you brought, you brought emotions, you brought damaged uh, emotions Uh, toxic emotions into that relationship. The Bible calls them strongholds. They are a basis upon which Satan can operate in your life. And a part of those strongholds is the thought processes that you have in your life. For example, when I get hurt as a child, 
I make an interpretation of that hurt. And usually children are very keen observers, but very poor interpreters. And so now all of a sudden I develop lie-based thinking based upon my interpretation. And so Satan builds a platform in my thought processes that keeps me believing a lie, living that lie, but I believe it's truth and I think I'm living the truth. And so he keeps us all bound up because he does not want us to experience the love and the healing of our Heavenly Father that we might walk in freedom. And so those thought processes become the pathways in your mind. I call them like trenches that are very carefully cut in your thought processes. For example, you have 50 to 60,000 thoughts a day. Most of the thoughts you had today are the same thoughts you had yesterday. If I were to ask the average person, and I've done that with this congregation, hey, your self-talk, tell me, what do you think about when you think about yourself? And almost 99% of what you responded back with was negative. I'm ugly. I'm fat. I'm no good. I'll never amount to anything. Nobody loves me. Nobody cares about me. Where do those thoughts originate from? They originated way back when you had that emotional experience, trauma, event, circumstance. Let's say you were bullied in school. You remember who said it, what was said, how hurtful it was, and you begin to develop pathways in your thought processes that you begin to live out during the course of your lifetime. So here is our big idea that we've used throughout this series is that why this is so important is because your life is always moving in the direction of your most dominant thoughts. All right, so if my most dominant thinking is negative, then my life is always going to move towards the negative side of things. Uh, Again, it's your self-talk. I'm not good enough. Nobody cares about me. I'm a failure, so on and so forth. So if you want to change your life, the Bible says you've got to change your thoughts. Romans 12, 2. You're going to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why? The mind is the control center of your life. It's the battleground upon which Satan stands because he understands like Goliath taunting the armies of Israel that if he can taunt you and control and manipulate your thoughts, then he will be successful in controlling and manipulating your life. So for many Christians, and I've mentioned this earlier, for many Christians, we get caught up So we get saved, we come into this relationship with Christ, we bring all of our baggage into that relationship, God has forgiven us of all of our sins, past, present, and future, remove the shame and the guilt of our past, we understand that, we get that, but we still have not been free from what is in this backpack, from the rocks that are in here, the damaged emotions, that God wants to bring healing, and that is a decision, and it is a process. So for many Christians, they just kind of get caught up in the performance trap. Well, if God's going to love me, then I've got to perform well, right? I've got to do right, be right, follow all the rules. And if I follow all the rules, then at some point, I'm going to tip over the scale and God's going to kind of like owe me, right? He owes me. So the way, the way we know this happens is because people all the time, they pray for God to, 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 you know, maybe it's a physical healing, maybe it's some kind of other healing that you're asking God for. You're asking him to heal an aunt, a, a parent, and, and they die, and then people get mad, right? They, they walk away from the faith saying, listen, God, I held up my end of the bargain, but God failed to hold up his end of the bargain. And we get in this performance trap. And performance trap evolves into pretending, right? The pretending trap. 
so we just kind of cover up. We mask. We put on a mask. We come to church. How you doing? Great. Wonderful. Never more blessed. And we never get real. We never get honest about what's happening in here. And people will spend their entire lives masking, covering up, avoiding, bypassing. Here's the problem. With every damaged emotion, there is a coping mechanism you have picked up. It is a means by which you self-medicate, and it is always destructive over time. And that's what your enemy does. So we're talking about steps of action. David stepped out onto the battlefield. He's the only one who was willing to do that. And when David stepped out onto the battlefield, he said to King Saul before he went out there, hey, God's given me victory over the, man, when I was a shepherd, over the lion, the bears. Now watch this. David didn't say, I did this in my own strength and power. He said, the Lord did this for me. Therefore, I believe that God through me will take out this uncircumcised Philistine who's defying the very name of God. And he steps out on the battlefield, and he's willing to fight for victory. Here's the point, is that, listen, when the nation of Israel was taken into the promised land, God said to Joshua, everywhere your footsteps, I've given you the land. Now go fight for it. Did God give it to them, or did they fight for it? They had to, it was both, right? God gave them the promise of the land. They had to fight for the land. This is, listen, you are not David in the story. Jesus is David in the story. Jesus has already stood toe-to-toe with your enemy, Satan. He has already been defeated. He's already, listen, God has defeated him once and for all. Does he still wreak havoc? Absolutely. He's, listen, he's still alive. He's not dead yet. But Jesus has victory over him. And the victory that Jesus established for you is yours to claim, but you still have to fight for it. In other words, you got to put forth effort if you want to receive healing. It's not just a question of just throwing a prayer up to God and say, okay, God, just, you know, erase everything that's happened in my past. Bring absolute healing in my, you know, in my emotions. Now, God may do some of that from time to time miraculously. I've experienced that in some areas of my life. But listen, this is a process of not, of, of transforming your mind, your thought processes. So, Here's the steps of action. We've, we've covered several of these. I'm just going to mention them, and we're going to hit the last two. Is that you got to select the number one stronghold that's holding you back. We looked at five mental strongholds in this story. Figure out which, what's, what's the basis from which Satan is operating your life. Because I'm going to give you an example right out of my life to tie all this together. So for me, it was there very, for some of you, maybe that stronghold is fear, right? You, you're driven by fear. All of your life, you've been driven by fear, and fear has a cousins, right? Anxiety and worry and uh, stress and dread and tension, and the antidote to fear is always faith. For me, my basis of Satan operates in my life is that of rejection. So again, it has cousins, Uh, insecurity, lost self-esteem, low self-worth, inferiority complex, uh, self-hate can also arise. For some, it's comfort, right? Fight or flight. The armies of Israel, they weren't going out on the battlefield. They just go out and sit, listen to Goliath speak. They go back to their tents and have lunch and have a nap, right? They're not going to take this guy on. So that's the way some of you are. You know this stuff is going on inside of you, but you're not going to fight to gain victory over it. You're just going to look for ways to comfort yourself, to medicate yourself, so that you just kind of get through. 
I hear this all the time. Christians go, well, you know, I'm just struggling for the Lord, just trying to get through. One day God's going to take me out of the world into heaven. It'll all be better then. Well, that is true. It will one day all be better. But that's not what God has. Listen, you're going to miss God's destiny for you in this lifetime if you do not fight for the the release and the healing of the emotional turmoil that's going on inside of you because you're going to be shoved and driven by your emotions and put your emotions in the driver's seat of your life when your emotions are never to be in the driver's seat of your life. Jesus is to be in your driver's seat. And uh, don't give me the carry, you know, Jesus take the wheel thing, but some for you, it's anger, right? Anger, remember, is a secondary emotion. always rooted in something, disappointment, rejection, addiction, so God wants to renovate. So you, you figure out, what, it, what is the platform? So for me, it was rejection. Why was that platform set up? Because when I was a child, my dad left his family. Just gone, boom, not a word. And so, you know, I was raised in a single-parent home. And uh, I had no idea why my dad left, how, why that transpired. And so there was that initial sense of rejection. That became the platform from which Satan could operate in my life. Number two, you take... So you take that thought captive, remember 2 Corinthians talks about that, and you write it down. Why do I write this down? Because um, if you give it a name, it begins, you can't defeat what you cannot define. Give it a name. Listen, you never have to be a prisoner to your past. It was just a lesson. It's not a life sentence. Just because of what happened to me in my past, I could have spent the rest of my life rejected, angry, bitter, resentful, let that just fill me up and flow over into every relationship, blame my dad, blame everybody else that I could find for my, the condition of my life and live a miserable life. Or I can make the decision that, you know what, that was a lesson from my past, but it does not have to determine what my future is going to look like. I want Jesus to determine that. So what is your platform? For some of you, it might be fear, right? You worry all the time, all the time. You just worry, 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 worry. Uh, that, the, fear is usually driven by the fu- fear of the future, right? That's what worry drives. I'm, I'm fearful of what might happen. What if, what if, what if, what if? So write it down. Number three, you identify the source of your thoughts. There are two primary sources. Now, you can think your own thoughts. The two primary sources the Bible talks about is Satan who always um, operates from fear-based thinking. Remember, it's fear-based thinking, and he seeks to elicit feelings in you of condemnation. Like, he just wants you to feel bad about yourself. You're a horrible person. You'll never amount to anything. This is never going to work out for you. Every time you try, it never works out for you. Why do you think it's going to work out for you this time? So this Holy Spirit speaks to us, not based out of fear, but faith, right? He wants to elicit faith, Never trying to elicit condemnation, but conviction. So I gave you Galatians 5, where Paul says, hey, here are the deeds of the flesh. Flesh is not the fleshly body, but the thought patterns in your mind, right? Here's what they, here's what they look like. Here's how they respond. Here's how they live. When you're not living, walking with the Spirit, but according to the flesh, here's what it looks like to walk according to the Spirit. So I, I just kind of paired them off, right? So the very first one was what? Love versus, or lust versus love. So if lust is all about what I can get, love is all about what I can give. Lust is all about feelings. Love is all about actions. So if the Spirit is speaking to my heart, 
he's probably going to be zeroing in on what? Not just feelings, but on, on actions. This is what love looks like. This is what love does. The great love chapter of 1 Corinthians 13 was all about not ooey-gooey feelings. It was all about this is what love looks like. This is what love does. This is how love acts and responds. So that helps me to understand. Remember, if you will identify the source, then you can change the course of your life. You need to understand, Paul said in Ephesians 6, you do not wrestle against flesh and blood. In other words, you're wrestling... It's not your wife, your husband, your children, your in-laws, your brother's wife who are the enemies. You can't control what people do to you. You can't control what people say to you. They're not even the real enemy. The enemy is Satan who operates behind the scenes. And just as God uses people to accomplish his purposes, Satan can also use people to try and accomplish his. So here's number four. And really, we're going to tag into. Take responsibility for the direction of your thoughts and challenge your excuses by reframing your thoughts. Now, that's a big mouthful. I understand. We'll unpack this. Listen, we always, we always find reasons to justify the way we feel, right? Like, man, if you say something and it just like, just like hits me the wrong way, I, I can... I can I can justify those feelings just like that, man. And I can come up with all kinds of things. And, uh, you know, Satan can start interjecting some thoughts in there and say, well, you know, this person is like that. And they're always like that. And and, uh, on and on we go. And so, uh, yeah. So my emotions get in the driver's seat. And so I make excuses. I I don't want to change this. I don't want to challenge this emotion. I don't want to challenge this thought. It's kind of like a person who goes to a counselor and let's say you go to the counselor because you are just like extremely burned out, man. Just like burned out. You're burned out with everything, your job, your family. And you go to the counselor and the first, they said, let me ask you a series of questions. Uh, tell me, um, are you getting a lot of, getting adequate sleep? No, not really. I, I really have problems sleeping at night. Uh, well, uh, tell me about your eating habits. Are you eating healthy? Uh, or, you know, is it just like fast food after fast food? Uh, well, yeah, that's pretty much uh, that's pretty much, you know, sums up my life. It's just like, you know, I'm, I'm always on the move. I, I'm just so busy and, and I'm not sleeping right. I'm not eating well. Well, let me ask you, do you exercise at all? Do you do, you do anything physical? No, I, I really don't have time for that. So the counselor says to you, you know what? Um, there are a lot of things we need, probably need to work on, which part of which is going to be your thought processes to help you with the burnout. Let's just start with this. Let's just say for the next two weeks before you come back to see me, you're going to get eight hours of sleep a night. You're going to start eating more healthy and you're going to exercise. I don't care if it's just walking or whatever, because it releases the endorphins in your, your brain, the chemical of your brain. It's the feel good. And just come back and tell me now how you're feeling after those two weeks. And then we'll start talking about the thought processes of your life. And if I were to look at that counselor and say, not going to do it, I ain't doing it. I, I don't care about any of that stuff. I just want you to, you know, give me a couple steps, give me a pill to take, and I'm going to be better, right? That's all I want. And so that's oftentimes how we approach things. And here's my reasoning for that. Because I would say something to the council, hey, you you know, if you were in my position, (laughs) you'd know how I feel. If, if If you had to live with the person I live with, I'm going to tell you what, you're lucky I haven't killed him yet. 
if, if you had the job that I have, if you had the stress on my, me that I have, if you had the working atmosphere I had, if you had the parents that I had, my dad cheated on my mom and, and on and on and just, I mean, just on and on. And you, so you can travel down this pathway of I'm excusing all of my behaviors because I have these emotions and these emotions are there because of somebody else. Remember what we talked about? Most of the hurt in your childhood came at the hands of somebody else. In fact, 90% of all the pain you'll experience in life comes at the hands of somebody else. As long as you can just prop them up as an excuse not to deal with your emotions and not to deal with your thought processes, you can excuse that away for the rest of your life. I think that Joseph could have done that, right? It's like, man, you know, the way my brothers treated me, I deserve to be angry. I deserve to be revengeful. I deserve this moment. Uh, or even David. Remember how David's brothers responded when he came on the scene? They questioned his heart. They said, man, you're just, you're just like a punk kid, and you're just like prideful, and, you know, get out of our face. We don't even want to look at you. And that's my interpretation of the verse uh, in chapter 17. That's the, that's the Greg version of the of the Bible, but actually what he said was, um, I know that you're conceited and how wicked your heart is. That's what his brother told him. All right, so here's my point is that when reason becomes a justification, then that justification becomes the basis of my excuses, and I can either make excuses in life or I can make progress, but I can't do both. God wants you to make progress. You may not have had anything to do with what's in here. But that doesn't matter. Who put it in there? The question is, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to let it continue to govern and direct your life? Or are you going to take up the fight and say, you know what? It stops here. We, I've got to do something different. Um, and so one of the things you do is you... You bring it to the Lord. I don't want to stagnate there. I want to make progress. I want to experience freedom. Because if I only make excuses and I never take responsibility, then I lapse into the victim game. And all negative emotions depend on their very existence, on your ability to blame someone or something else in your life that you're not happy about. Even if you're not directly responsible, again, event plus response is going to determine the outcome more than anything else in your life, all right? So there's a couple of words I put on your outline. Um, cognitive bias. What that means is that all of us have a mental filter or framework. So all of your life, your thought processes have developed a grid system in your, your thought, in your mind, right? So let's say my grid system is made up of primarily negative stuff, and let's say, for example, you're given a project at work and you're just like, man, you knock it out of the park. I mean, you really, you put a lot of time and effort into it. Great presentation, great concept. Man, your bosses love it. And your boss comes up and says, man, that is a great job. I, I, you really did well. But by the time that message filters through all the negativity in your grid system, by the time it comes out on the other side, you're probably thinking, well, he's just saying that. He, he doesn't really mean that. And, and so you, you start all this self-talk, this negative stuff, because you have this mental framework from which you are operating. 
The renewal of the mind is about dismantling that framework so that you put God's framework in your thought processes by challenging the lies that you have believed and replacing the lies with God's truth. You want your mental grid system to be based on God's truth and God's truth alone. That is so, so important because of personal beliefs that may not be true. They have biased you maybe in a direction that is really not factual, but in your mind, you think it is. And so this can impact your relationship on God, your relationship with others. So for some people, the way they see God, like their earthly father never could do enough, never could measure up. My father never said he was proud of me, never gave me a positive word. Guess what mental grid you have built? Now you enter into a relationship with God. You think that God is your father, can't never measure up, never good enough. I sin, therefore God's going to get me. He's going to pay me back. That's why I'm having problems. That's why this thing's going on in my life. And because you've got this bad grid system. So you've got to learn how to, what I call reframe. The technical term is cognitive restructuring. So what that means is you're just putting truth in the place of lies and reframe, for example, for me. All right, my dad left when I was young. All right, that was a bad start in life. But I can reframe that and say, you know what? But God has used that to develop some things in my life that have become the platform from which I can do ministry in the hearts and lives of others. The classic reframer in the Bible was the Apostle Paul. Paul, all of his life, wanted to go to Rome and preach the gospel to the Roman uh, emperors and, and to the, you know, the leadership so that the gospel would spread. Paul finally gets to go to Rome, but he doesn't go to preach the gospel. He's a prisoner, and he's chained up 24-7 to Roman guards, and he is awaiting possible execution. And so Paul in Philippians, you can read this, Philippians chapter 1 and verses 12 through 14, Paul says this, man, this is what's happening, but let me reframe this. Dude, I mean, this is Paul who, um, who you know, started all kinds of churches, and this is Paul who, you know, he's writing on, he says, you know what I'm doing while I'm here? Every eight hours, they bring me a brand new guard who's an influential person. I just keep telling them about Jesus. I just keep telling them about, they keep getting saved and going out there. I just keep telling them about Jesus. It's a wonderful evangelism tool. Uh, so Paul reframed what was happening, not that God was doing something to him, but that God was now doing something through him. Now, if you would have read Paul's response in Philippians in what I call the New Winers version, uh, he would have said something. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me really sucks. And this is as a result of of the hell I'm going through, I'm quitting, I'm giving up small group, I'm leaving the church, I am walking away from Jesus, I don't want this anymore. That's not what he said at all. He said, man, brothers and sisters, this is a wild opportunity for me. In essence, Paul said, it could have been worse, could have been worse than it is. But I'm going to reframe this because I know that God's going to use it for his ultimate glory. And that's exactly what God did. Roman soldiers were getting saved and taking that message into the Roman Empire. And only history began to reveal how that began to influence and impact the emperors in Rome and the ultimate outcome of all of that. And so, you know, there's always, you know, it can be bad, but it can always be worse, right? Here's number five. 
Replace your toxic thoughts with God's thoughts based on truth. All right, Philippians 4, 8, 9, you might just want to jot that down where Paul talks about think on these things, right? Think on what's good and admirable and all these things because, you know, what you put in your mind, what you feed your mind, I know that there's, some, there's a lie of the enemy out there that says, oh, you know, I can, do, I can watch anything, read anything, do anything, and it doesn't affect me, man. Yes, it does. What you're feeding your mind, what you're putting into your mind is of utmost importance if you're going to deal with this stuff. Right? So here's the, the next one. Meditate and make declarations daily. To meditate means that I find a truth of God's word that combats the lie that I've believed concerning this emotion that's in the backpack. And to meditate simply means that you think about something over and over again. If you know how to worry, you know how to meditate. Right? Worry is just focused thinking over and over again about what might happen. So meditation means I'm, I'm meditating. I'm allowing the Holy Spirit to pull out the truth of God's word that combats a lot. Watch this. Your mind cannot think two thoughts at the same time. It's not about trying to say, oh, I'm not going to think about this. I'm not going to think about this. I'm not. All that does is make you think about what you're trying not to think about. You don't, you don't rehearse. You replace. You replace the lie with truth. You meditate on that. Now watch this. Here's the next important step is that you make a statement of declaration. And what I mean by that, a statement of declaration is simply a truthful statement that you're going to say over and over again, out loud, to yourself. So if, now catch this, if I know that I have some emotional issues, and I know Satan's operating off my platform of rejection, and I find God's truth, and I start praying about that and meditating on it, allowing the Holy Spirit to take that truth and build truth into my mind and my heart, and I write that truth down. So there was a, there's a, a doctor, Dr. Carolyn Leaf, who's written a lot about the brain and how it operates, called one of her books, A Switch on Your Brain. Listen to what she says. This is a secular woman. Not, it has been found that 12 minutes a day of Focused prayer over an eight-week period of time can change the brain to such an extent that it can be measured on a brain scan. That's why God spends so much time talking about meditation. When Jesus confronted the devil in the wilderness temptations, what did he say? Spoke out loud. It is written. He didn't have a stare down with his enemy. He didn't have a conversation with him. He just says, here's a statement of declaration. What's the first thing that Satan attacked against Jesus? His identity. If you are the son of God, tell these stones to turn into bread. What happened prior to the temptation? His baptism. What happened at the baptism? His heavenly father spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus had not even done anything yet. And yet God identifies him and says he's well pleased. And Satan does what? He attacks his identity, just like he's going to attack your identity. So let me give you, in closing, a script out of my own life. So the basis of my stronghold is rejection, right? That's the platform from which the enemy operates, coming out of a childhood experience. And so my thoughts oftentimes were lie-based, low self-esteem, never good enough, smart enough, talented enough, um, I got caught right up into the performance trap. You know, gave my life to Christ because my life was becoming a wreck. Gave my life to Jesus. Brought all that baggage into that relationship. 
And so nothing much was changing in my life. In fact, I was still struggling with the same old stuff, could not seem to overcome, still dealing with the same uh, coping mechanisms, same self-medication. And anytime something bad happens to me, I thought, you know what, God's trying to pay me. Is God paying me back for something I've done? Have I, I've done something wrong? And you know what happens when you live that way? It is constant anxiety, and you just get exhausted trying to measure up to God. And so I knew the platform was rejection. I took my thoughts captive, and I began writing them down. What are the thoughts that kept rolling over in my self-talk? Remember, the Bible says life and death is in the power of your tongue. That's also in your self-thoughts, right? Life and death is in the power of your thoughts. I think like not worthy, not good enough, not smart enough. And so I clearly identified the source of my erroneous thoughts, right? So this is not coming from God. Those thoughts are coming from the enemy. So what is the truth that will combat those thoughts that I'm having and those feelings that I'm having about myself that I'm all... I'm just all messed up. Well, here's, here's the verse that God took me to. The first verse I ever learned in the Bible is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. and all your ways, acknowledge him. He will make your path straight. Okay, God, I need some new pathways in my thought processes if I'm going to experience healing from my painful past. So God took me to Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now the key phrase there, a part of it is in Christ Jesus. Paul's favorite term to explain that when you give your life to Jesus, you are in Christ and he is in you. Now what did Paul say? All of the thoughts that I kept having about myself that were fear-based, driven by the enemy, remember what he tries to elicit? Feelings of condemnation. He wants you to feel bad about yourself. And so Paul says, no, God says, I'm in Christ, therefore there is no condemnation. Why? Because my debt, the word condemnation is a legal term, means that you owe a debt, there's a debt against you, has been paid. Who paid the debt? Jesus paid the debt. And so if Jesus paid my debt, therefore I don't owe the debt any longer because he's the one who has already paid for it. Now here's where the enemy tries to trick you up, is that he says, well, that's fine and well. But, you know, that was in the past, but what about the present? What about what you're going to do in the future? And so I struggled with that all the time. I was like, man, you know what? God, I, I just can't seem to get to. And then all of a sudden it dawned on me, listen, if Jesus paid for my sin debt, how much debt did I owe when he paid for it? All of it, right? How many sins did I committed when Jesus died on the cross? I hadn't committed any of them yet. Watch this. When Jesus died on the cross for your sins, he died for your sins past, present, and future. There is not a single sin that you could ever commit in this lifetime if you're in Christ that God is ever going to hold against you that you owe anything for because Jesus already stamped it paid in full. All right, so that's a truth that you rise up against your enemy and says, well, you know what? I don't have to feel this way. I might feel condemned, but I don't have to act condemned. I don't have to be condemned because Jesus died on the cross and he died for all of my sin. And so therefore, Jesus loves me on my best days, just like he loves me on my worst days. There is nothing I can do to cause him to love me less, nothing I can do to cause him to love me more. Therefore, I am in Christ and I don't have to struggle with, with the unconditional trying to accept the unconditional, absolute love and the acceptance of the Father. God says it's truth. Therefore, I'm going to put it in my mind as truth, and I'm going to live as though it is true. 
And then chapter 8 and verse 2 goes on to say, the reason why I can take truth and experience transformation is because in the Holy Spirit, he says, there is the law of the Spirit that's been placed inside of you. The law, not Mosaic law, but the principle of God is that the Holy Spirit came inside of you because it's the Holy Spirit who enables you to experience healing of these damaged emotions on the inside. And it's the Holy Spirit who takes the truth of God's word and enables you to put that into your grid system on your memory bank so that you're operating through the truth of God's word rather than the lie of the enemy and and I just take all that together, man. I just find me a verse of scripture. I just pray over it. I just say, God, would you just give me a statement of declaration that I can rise up against my enemy whenever he tries to push back on me and take me right back to the same old junk that you've been dealing with in my life in the past? So here's a declaration I made for this series I am a child of God. He is my father. He has made me in his image. He has made me to be a giant slayer and an overcomer. He has put his creative power in my words. And from this day forward, I will use my words in alignment with heaven. I will agree with his truth and disagree with the doubts, fears, and the lies of the enemy. That's a declaration of truth by which I live my life based upon Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I've written in my journal. I'm not a great journaler like my wife, but I do write down. I have a, I call it my black book. It's got all, all the things that God's been teaching me. I've written them down in there, not in any particular order. But I write declarations down in there. And always, so the declaration is fighting against a lie that I've been believing, and I put the verse of Scripture, right? So things like, I am dead to sin and alive supernaturally. Through Christ, I am 100% loved and worthy to receive all of God's blessing. I set the course of my life with, his, with, with my words, James chapter 3. God is on my side, therefore I declare I cannot be discouraged or defeated. As Abraham did, I speak God's promises over my life. My faith is being strengthened to possess all that Jesus has won on my behalf. I have a sound mind. Today I will think the right thoughts, say the right words, make the right decisions, and in every situation I face. I declare peace over the raging waters in my mind, emotions, body, and family. I say peace be still to each of these areas of my life. I speak to every mountain of discouragement, stress, depression, and lack, and cast it into the sea in Jesus' name. I speak to this day, and I call you blessed. I declare that I serve a mighty God who today will exceedingly and abundantly above all I can ask or think. I say you are a good God, and I really anticipate your goodness today. Those are statements of declaration. I'm telling you guys, God wants to heal you of what's happening in here so that you can walk in the freedom that Jesus, he is your giant slayer. He's already defeated the enemy. Now start claiming what is rightfully yours in Christ. The Bible says that every promise of God is yes in Jesus. Now start claiming it and living it. Amen? We're done.